Hi, I'm Andy McDonald, Senior Pastor of Whole Life Church here in Orlando, Florida. We're a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-generational congregation, a faith community committed to our mission to love people into lifelong friendship with God. And we're committed to our vision to be a church without walls, fully engaged in serving the people of our community. Thank you for joining us as we continue Speaking of Grace. Well, it's nice to be back in the building together. Uh, We've been doing this for a while without live musicians on the platform. We've had church here. Um, We watch everybody on the line like everybody does from home. Uh, But now we have the musicians and the others on the platform in-house, and it just feels good to to be together and be broadcasting, streaming this live. For, For 47 weeks, for 47 weeks, we've been recording the service on Wednesday. It gets to be edited and then uploaded and then be able to be viewed on the weekend. And, and uh, so it's probably been a little higher quality. For those of you who are in, online right now, uh, we didn't get to edit today. Whatever you've seen is what has happened. And so I hope, that, uh, hope it's been a, a good experience as you've been observing online today as well. Uh, you can be pretty sure that if we had known... Uh, exactly when we'd be reassembling with live musicians and everything in the house, we might have reordered the sermon series uh, a little bit and uh, thought about maybe having something differently paired with coming back than a sermon entitled Easy Adultery. (laughs) Yeah, but here we are. Here we are. Uh, Last week, we began this new series, Jesus Doesn't Make Life Easy, and and we took some time to to acknowledge the high reverence, the very uh, high, high reverence that the people in Jesus' day had for the law of God. It was was very reverenced. Uh, The law was something you just didn't mess with. You didn't mess with it. But even in this early Jesus ministry, this Sermon on the Mount that we're, we're going to talk about today, before that, he must have already been messing with the law in some way, uh, because rumors have gone around in the countryside before the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus has come, the Messiah has come, to do away with the law. I mean, whatever he'd been saying in his sermons— Whatever he had been including in his messages, it had caused people to begin to believe that that some of the conservative guard, at least, that they had spread this gossip that he had come to destroy or abolish the law and the prophets. (laughs) Something he was saying had given the impression that he had come to, to destroy this. And he had to explain it outright. Do you think that I've come, he said, to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He was clearly saying nothing is changing in the law of God. But then he adds this sort of troubling, almost parenthetical statement. For I tell you, I tell you that unless your righteousness, your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of law, you won't even get into the kingdom of God. Now grasp the context, just for a second. Think about the context. Rumors that he's doing away with the most sacred part of his whole nation's culture, the law. That something he's been saying has sparked this rumor. 
And then he says, very directly, with no innuendos, no, I'm not doing it. I've not come to destroy but to fulfill the law. Nothing in the law is changing. And then he teaches that unless you do the law better than the very best law keepers in your nation, you're not going to even get into the kingdom at all. And right after he says that, he starts messing with the law. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of, you can almost see the twinkle in his eye as he does this. The people on the hillside that day, they, they listened. There was something about the way that he said things. He wasn't teaching a, 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 a sort of a rote, memorized talk that they had heard a million times before. Uh, he, he, he gave his words, his concepts, his teachings, kept catching his listeners off guard. They knew. They, they read the Old Testament. They knew that God is light. But Jesus, just a few paragraphs before, had said to them, you, you're the light of the world. They, they knew that God's blessing, they read all the prophets and how the blessings of God could spill down upon the people. And they knew that when there was, the crops did well and there was freedom and there was peace in the land, that, that, that God was blessing them. But Jesus just told them, You'll be blessed when when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. It's no wonder when, when Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount that Matthew records these words. When Jesus had finished saying uh, these things, the crowds, the crowds were, were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not like their regular teachers of the law. Our text for today is Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through, uh, through 30. But let's just first look at the first two verses. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. A direct quote from the law. And then he says, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with him, with her in his heart. Now, for those who knew Scripture well, they're listening to Jesus' teaching, and if they were familiar with the Old Testament, this is just a little bit of a terrifying statement that Jesus has made. I mean, you knew that Leviticus 20, verse 10 says that both parties in an adulterous relationship are to be put to death. Put to death. Some in the crowd who who were really sort of proud that they had never broken this commandment now realize that they might be guilty of this one. And will the stones, will the stones start flying to put them to death? Today, in a more equal society, we would not want to slight our women. And so we would not give them a skip bow, but we would recognize that this expanded understanding of this commandment could fall on women as well as on men. Jesus is calling those who are his followers. As he's teaching this sermon, he's calling those who are his followers to, to live their lives with, with no sex outside of marriage. And when I just say those words, in our culture today, that may hurt people's heads a little. I mean, maybe some of you listening, that's really hard to imagine in a culture that models and entertains us with callous comfort for sex outside of marriage. Within the protective covenant, 
relationship of marriage. This amazing, intimate exchange is a, is a regular way of covenant renewal, a way to renew the covenant of marriage. It, it, it's a physical expression that echoes the, the, the words of the covenant. I, I am yours fully and completely and vulnerably. I seek to share all of who I am in the the safety of this covenant relationship. At least one of the reasons, at least one of the reasons adultery is prohibited is because it moves this amazing covenantal renewal experience from a covenant renewal to a consumer satisfaction. Uh, when, When we're consumers, we have a relationship with the vendor as long as they are meeting our needs as long as they're meeting our needs. But but let that waver. I mean, let the price go up a little too high or the customer service come down a little too low. And we go looking for another supplier of the product or service. Outside of marriage, the relationship is more consumeristic. People surveyed about this uh, uh, say that they became sexually active in their relationship to keep it moving forward. That that, that just at some point we had to add this to our relationship because it it had to happen next. One woman who had been in a relationship where she cohabitated for for a long time, she said this in a quotation, I I felt like I was on this unending multi-year audition to be his wife. From even secular psychologists today, research has now revealed that couples that cohabit prior to marriage have a higher risk of divorce after marriage. Without the covenant, without the safety of the covenant, this this promise, this bond of marriage, we selfish humans, we're always, always looking for an upgrade. We are. Wondering, you know, this is good, but but maybe I I don't want to go all the way to marriage because maybe I could do better. You know, maybe I could do better. In fact, one psychologist writing in the New York Times said that during their research, one thing that men and women agree on is that their standards for a live-in lover are lower than their standards for a spouse. We have to remember that Jesus is inviting his followers in this message to live well. He wants us to live our best lives, best lives. And Jesus is saying that to do it, it... do that sexually is to reserve that until it can be part of the covenant of marriage and not simply something we enjoy and consume selfishly for us. This transitions us to Jesus' uh, statement about lust, the lustful look. You know, people sometimes think that when Jesus said this, he, he means that to have any kind of sexual desire to find somebody sexually attractive or physically attractive is a terrible thing, and we're all going to go to hell for it. But that isn't what Jesus is saying at all. Tim Keller was looking at these verses, and he says, we, we know this. We know this uh, first because there are other words, good words, that Jesus could have used for sexual desire. But Jesus doesn't use them. He chooses this very interesting word that we translate lustful look or lust or lust. Uh, Just a little important sidebar for those of you who might think the Bible is sort of against sexual desire. Uh, You know, there's no way the Bible is like that. You're you're only into the second chapter before this Adam wakes up from surgery and opens his eyes and sees this beautiful new person. 
and begins to say this little poem as he in his birthday suit meets her and hers and, and uh, sings a little song about how or gives a little poem about how they can become one and how exciting and wonderful this is. If, if we took the biblical passages that we could turn to in the Old Testament especially and translated them literally, even the most liberal, you know, liberated folks in our congregation would blush at some of those verses. The word Jesus uses here that we translate lust or look lustfully is one that particularly uh, relates to idolatry and greed. Idolatry and greed. It's a word that consistently is about idolatry and usually gets greed sort of pushed with it. That kind of attitude Jesus is talking about is when we look at another person, look at another person with idolatrous greed. Now, biblically, there's nothing wrong with having money and making money. Uh, There are lots of wonderful biblical heroes who are very, very wealthy. The difference, though, between having wealth and greed, greed is, is, first of all, selfish. That's the first thing about greed. It's the desire to have more money, more stuff, not so that you can share it, not so that you can bless God's kingdom with it or help other people. It's it's so you can have it for you to consume and, and use it your will. It's not just selfish, though. Greed is also addictive. It's addictive. A person who is greedy has to have more money. Has to have more money. They, 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 want, they have to have more. They want more. And, they, and they'll, they'll cut corners to get it. They'll, they'll, uh, they'll trample on people and mistreat people in order to get it. They'll work too hard to get it and, and overwork and lose relationships because of it. Because they needed more. They must have more. So first, greed is greed is with regard to money is selfish. Second, it's it's addictive. And third, there are fantasies involved. If you want to do a little self-check about you and greed, when you think about more money in your life, are you talking about, yeah, if, if I had if I had this much more money, then I'd do all these things. Or if I had this much more, then I, I can make this. And I, in other words, I mean, in other words, you begin to look to money. To, to give you the deep affirmation and the deep security that only can be provided by God. That's greed. And the word Jesus here uses implies that it is possible to have that same attitude towards sex. Jesus talking about making sex into an idol. What, what does that look like? This greedy idolatry. It's something that is used selfishly. It can be addictive. It can consume us with fantasies. And in some way, if we are caught up in it, in this greedy idolatry, we end up looking to sex to give us that which only God can really bring into our lives. Tim Keller, in in reference to these texts, points out four forms this, this greedy sexual idolatry can take, this lust can take. First is pornography. We just said that sex is not a consumer good. It's forgiving and serving our partner in that covenant of marriage. It's not just for self-fulfillment, self-fulfillment, and pornography would take us down that path. Second, all sex outside of marriage is using it selfishly rather than using it unselfishly. It's about getting, not giving. Third, he says that just the belief that you can't be happy 
or a whole person without it? That unless I'm having sex, at least occasionally, I can't be whole or happy person? You can see the idolatry here when there's anything in our lives, anything in our lives that we say we have to have God and this in order to be happy. We're taking this and putting it up there in God's place and, and making an idol of it. Anything else, we say that I've got to have this and God. Uh, God alone, God alone should be on top. Just don't believe. Listen, please, 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 especially young people, just don't believe what the culture says. That it's absolutely impossible for you to be a happy and whole person unless you have sex. You can be a happy and whole person. You can be. And fourth, the fourth one is what Keller calls the most subtle form of sexual idolatry of all. It doesn't even feel sexual. If in your mind you have this fairy tale dream of having the perfect marriage and the perfect spouse and perfect little children and a perfect home, and if you say to yourself, if I had all that, then I'd be happy. I'd finally feel good about myself. Doesn't seem sexual at all, but you are making sex and romantic love into an idol. Why? Jesus is about to come down really hard, really hard on this. Why is Jesus so hard about this kind of idolatry? I mean, he's pretty strong about this as he continues teaching, saying, if your eye causes you to move towards sexual idolatry, pluck your eye out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut your hand off. Now, of course, Jesus is not talking literally about cutting off your hand or plucking out your eye. Uh, What is he talking about? He's talking about drastic behavior, drastic, taking drastic steps, drastic behavior. Jesus knows that the idolatry of sexuality and love will destroy you, destroy you. Stop it at all costs. And Jesus hints at how we can, might, might be delivered from it. He says, it'd be better to chop off your hand or pluck out your eye and have those body parts destroyed than to have your whole soul thrown into hell. Without going into all the details of translation, Jesus here equates hell to a place, a place of deep longings, a place of unquenchable thirst, unquenchable thirst. Whether we've never been married, whether you're married right now, uh, maybe you used to be married, uh, sex outside of marriage points toward a promise of consolation and closure and affirmation and satiated thirst and deep needs being met. But the truth is, the truth is that this great gift outside of the covenant context of marriage won't deliver what it seems to promise. Instead, it will destroy your ability to really be yourself. You'll be pulled into places that aren't really you. It it can destroy your freedom. The very freedom it promises you, uh, it 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 will somehow take away from you. It forms and calls you into an addiction. And so if you yourself find yourself engaged in greedy sexual idolatry, thinking you will arrive at some point of satisfaction through it, the reality is that you're, you're like a person floating on a raft in the middle of the ocean, dying of thirst, water, water everywhere, and not a drop to drink. In contrast, the amazing, 
intimate union in a covenant of relationship of marriage, according to Romans 7 and Ephesians chapter 5, are a foretaste of the ultimate moment of complete satisfaction when we embrace our Savior Jesus at the end of time. Remember the Pharisees and the teachers of the law whose righteousness, ours, has to exceed in order to even be in the kingdom? Jesus and his expanded teaching on this commandment wants us to recognize that any righteousness that is worthy, any righteousness that meets the, the mark of righteousness that we need to be in, the, in, in his kingdom is his righteousness given to us by his grace. But I was thinking about, um, as I was writing the sermon this week, I was sort of thinking about, uh, are, there are some choices. There's some choices that we can make that might make it harder for the devil to win us over to this kind of soul-damning idolatry. Number one, at, at the very first sign that someone other than your spouse might be a better ear for you to talk, or understand us better, or, or sympathize with us more, just shelve that relationship. Just shelve it. Take it as drastic an action as plucking out your eye or cutting off your hand. End that relationship. Number two, if we find ourselves attracted to physically or emotionally to someone other than our spouse, build distance Build distance between us and them physically and emotionally. Don't think that you can stand, that you have the pride that you can stand because it will lead to a life-altering tragic fall to live with that illusion. Number three, determine that we want all the joy and fulfillment and meaning and connection and safety that comes from its experiencing uh, becoming one in this great intimacy as covenantal renewal, and never, never from a mindset of consumption. And number four, we can strengthen our connection with God. You know, that that God might bring to us the affirmation and the fulfillment only available from him, only available, and that we might be able then to be equipped to share with the spouse and remove expectations from our spouse, unrealistic expectations that we should get those things from them that only God can supply. And number five, finally, we need to talk to one another as spouses. What, Andy? Yeah. Talk to each other. Talk to each other. Uh, We can talk to our spouses more. Share your thoughts unpack our crazy ideas, pick something we've never talked about and say, let's just talk about that. Uh, When I'm doing premarital counseling, the first visit, the couple that comes to see me, I always do this, the first visit, in case they don't come back. (laughs) You know, I'm not that great a counselor. uh, So I think I better share this first. And I tell them they've come to the mountaintop and the guru is going to tell them the very secret of happy marriage. And, um, And I explain to them, the secret of a happy marriage is casual conversation. I've been doing this a long time, 40 plus years, and I've never had a couple on the verge of divorce come sit in my office and say, you know, Andy, we're going to have to, we're going to have to get a divorce because we talk to each other too much. Never happened. (laughs) I don't think it ever would. You know, Jesus knew what he was talking about. 
He created humans with a sexual appetite. He made us with desires for intimacy to know and be known. He knew the law. He knew the law. He he knew then and he knows now that any pride over our successful avoidance of adultery doesn't protect us from adultery. And that wrong-headed idolatrous greed is in this area of our lives is adultery even before it's played out in the physical act. And Jesus uses plucking out our eye or cutting off our hand to help us grasp the seriousness, the seriousness of, of, the, of the level of desire and the drastic action we must take to not be suckered into this idolatrous sexual greed of adultery. Oh God, oh God, may we hunger and thirst for you. And may we be filled and our thirst quenched and our needs met in you. Hi, this is Randy McGray, podcast producer and host here at Whole Life Church. Loving people into a lifelong friendship with God is our mission at the Whole Life Church and our podcasts, Speaking of Grace and its companion, 15 with Andy, Randy, and Jeff, are designed to help facilitate conversations that help us grow together in that pursuit. Now that you've heard the message for this week, don't forget to check out the Whole Life Takeaways for this message. Swipe up in today's show notes and join the conversation. Speaking of conversations, each Wednesday morning we take a closer look at the week's message. That's right, the one you just listened to. We discuss practical ways to apply spiritual lessons and ask honest questions about the issues we face as Christians, all focused through the lens of grace. Your voice is a welcomed addition to that conversation. We encourage your thoughts and your questions by sending a voicemail or text to 407-965-1607 or send an email to podcast at wholelife.church. You can find everything podcast-related on our website, wholelife.church slash podcast. And plan on spending every Tuesday evening and Wednesday morning with us as we bring you the Whole Life Church inspiration you love straight into your headphones. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. 